Welcome to Illuminating Health, the UCSF School of Nursing's podcast that sheds light on health and healthcare issues affecting our daily lives. My name is Alachi Oku, current student in the Family Nurse Practitioner Specialty, and today I am happily joined by Carolina Fanoia, a nurse and nurse professor in the UCSF School of Nursing. Thank you for joining today's episode. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and very nice to meet you, Aluchi. Diabetes is a chronic condition that can lead to health complications, including kidney disease, heart disease, nerve damage, and other problems. Throughout your career, you have worked to make quality treatment for diabetes and prediabetes accessible, particularly for vulnerable communities. To begin, can you just tell us about a typical diabetes patient that you see? First, I have to say there is you know, there is no typical diabetes patient. Uh, I would say each patient uh, has their own story and unique circumstances. Um, but I'll share with you a story of one of the patients that uh, we've been working with in our current uh, program with uh, Population Health. Her name, let's just say R. Uh, she was one of the first patients that we enrolled in this new uh, pilot program. And I'll tell you more about that later. We enrolled her in December of 22. She's 55 years old, uh, English-speaking cis woman. And, you know, despite her really trying her best, uh, her A1C, which is how we measure control of diabetes or, or management of diabetes, was at 9.9 at enrollment. So for those of you who don't know what that means, that's about an average blood glucose of about 237. Uh, for most people with diabetes, the goal for A1C is seven, and that's about an average of about 154. So R, you know, she lives with her husband, she has a son, she also has a daughter, and she cares full-time for her grandkid. So like I said, despite her going to her primary care appointments and also having an endocrinologist here at UCSF, she continues to struggle or was really struggling with her diabetes management. Once we did our intake, you know, we found out a lot of things uh, and, and identified a lot of the barriers that she was facing uh, to care for herself. Uh, she screened positive for food insecurity. She was also suffering from depression. She, um, we also discovered that her diet was very high in carbohydrates um, and very low in protein, uh, protein intake and vegetable intake. All of this was in the context, of course, of food insecurity. So what was happening is her husband, her, his work hours varied quite a bit. So her SNAP benefits would, you know, she would get SNAP benefits and then because of the income fluctuation, they will drop her. So then she would be out of benefits. And, you know, she was really trying to take all her meds and she had a sensor, you know, a continuous glucose monitor, which is an amazing tool, but she was utterly confused about how to use the sensor. And she was also very confused about the, her insulin. She's, she's on insulin. She was very confused about her dosing. Um, so given your profession and your expertise, uh, how common would you say diabetes is? Well, unfortunately, diabetes is extremely common. Um, and if you look at the latest CDC uh, data, which shows the years 2001 to 2021, it shows that the prevalence is significantly increasing among adults uh, 18 years and older. And sadly, I would say that, that when the next round of data comes, it's probably going to be higher uh, given COVID. At this point in time, the latest data we have is that uh, around 38 million people have diabetes in the U.S. So that is about 11.6% of the population. 
And to kind of make those numbers of made perhaps a little more real, if you can picture that's one in 10 people in the US has diabetes. And one out of five of those people actually doesn't know they have diabetes. Wow, those are really staggering numbers. What would you say is contributing to the rise in type two diabetes specifically? There are complex intersecting factors that I think are contributing to this increase in prevalence. And um, what I'm gonna try to do briefly is just kind of go over some of those factors. So I'm gonna be focusing on type two diabetes, which is the most common type of diabetes. Uh, of the cases that I just described, 90 to 95% of those cases are type two. At the top of the list is, is obesity, right? Um, it's one of the primary risk factors for type two. And we have seen the prevalence of obesity steadily increasing in the United States over the last, uh, I would say, three, four decades. Uh, and this is true both for adults and children. Related to that is, again, this, um, this pattern of folks having uh, diets that are not the healthiest, right? Um, consumption of high calorie diets, processed foods that are rich in sugar and unhealthy fats uh, have become very common. Um, and again, there's, there's nuances here in terms of socioeconomic status and how that's related to, to all kinds of things. And I'm gonna get back to that. Um, the next one also connected to socioeconomic class is a lack of physical activity. Sedentary lifestyles, uh, lack of physical activity, both among uh, adults and children leads to obesity, which then leads to insulin resistance. Um, and again, when I say correlated with class is because, you know, you have to have a safe neighborhood. You have to have access to recreational facilities that are accessible and safe. And also you have to have the privilege of having a job that gives you the flexibility to step out to go to the gym, right? Or to step out to take a real break. So it's all very inter interconnected. The other thing that I think contributes to the rise that we're seeing is a, is a shift in demographics, perhaps, you know, as the population is aging, we know the older we get, the higher risk for type two. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of people aging, higher risk. We're also seeing a shift in demographics uh, with respect to ethnicity. We can also influence some of those rates. And lastly, I would have to say it's it's our lack of universal health care. You know, I think that in the context of, you know, that all these disparities in access to healthy diets, healthy uh, neighborhoods, we have a situation where not everybody has access to quality health care and to preventive services, right? So we have folks that are at risk of obesity, overweight, they have no access to health care for preventive services are very limited. So their screening of prediabetes gets delayed if, you know, which then leads to diabetes, you know, so it's this very um, complex spiral of circumstances uh, that we have in this country. And lastly, I would say uh, COVID. Uh, we, we know now we have pretty clear evidence that having had a COVID infection increases the risk of both type one and type two. Um, this is super complex. There's a lot of research going on. It probably has, there's some epigenetic thing in there where maybe somebody had the predisposition genetically or some other risk factors. And then the COVID infection is what triggers that, that you know, it was like the last drop. So Oluchi, I, I know that you have an interest in diabetes as well. And uh, I would love to learn a little bit about what has inspired you to pursue um, this area. I had 
a close friend growing up that had type one diabetes. And I think that seeing her grow up with that um, illness and the challenges and the triumphs and tribulations that she had at a young age really sparked my interest. And then coming from a community, African, African-American community, marginalized community where diabetes is really, really prevalent. We know these things are happening. We know that there's a lot of systemic factors against it. What can I do? What is my role? How do I influence or how can I change things, especially you know, going into the role as a family nurse practitioner, as a provider in primary care in the future? And so I was like, okay, where do I see myself most? And I, I found that I kept kind of circling around that ideas of diabetes and diabetes care and the need for more representation in that field. I think it's important for patients to see people that look like themselves as well as can relate to the environments that they are in. Wonderful. I am so, so looking forward to having you in class. Um, You touched on this a little bit before, but what kind of health complications do patients with diabetes experience? First one at the top is cardiovascular disease. So we know that diabetes increases the risk of both heart disease and stroke. And to put it simply, you know, high blood glucoses essentially contribute to the buildup of the plaque, right? Which is what we call atherosclerosis, which then leads to reduced blood flow, which then leads to cardiovascular events. The other one that's up on the list is nephropathy or kidney disease. Again, diabetes is the leading cause of kidney disease in this country and in the world. Uh, Again, persistent high blood sugars can damage the kidneys. They're super, there's all these little tiny arteries in the kidneys and they get slowly damaged then reducing the kidney function leading to uh, chronic kidney disease and kidney failure. Nerve damage or neuropathy is also quite common. Again, high blood sugars damage those tiny little nerves, uh, especially in the extremities. Retinopathy or damage of the retina in the eye. This can result in vision problems. Fortunately, there is treatment for this. So if, but if left untreated, it can cause blindness. Foot complications. Feet need blood flow and need nerves that work so that we know what's up with our feet. And so the combination of those two things, if blood sugars are not on target, can lead to infections, can lead to um, or healing in the feet, which sadly uh, sometimes can lead to amputation of toes or, or extremities. Skin conditions, hypertension connected to the cardiovascular. A few that are not well known is uh, gastroparesis, which is a type of neuropathy. And basically it involves the stomach. Again, it has to do with a, with a nervous system, like there's nerves that go to your stomach, right? That send all kinds of signal. And so for some folks, they develop this condition where the emptying of the stomach is delayed, which then leads to all kinds of digestive problems. And the other one that oftentimes people don't know or don't think about is hearing impairment. Diabetes is actually linked to an increased risk of hearing loss. And I want to point out that the severity and the likelihood of complications is directly related to, to management, right? So someone with diabetes who's, you know, has access to resources, has all the support they need, and they're able to manage their diabetes so that they're on target, their A1C is seven over the decades, you know, the likelihood of them having complications, it's much, much lower, right, than someone who's, who's struggling and whose blood glucoses are not on target. What groups are most impacted by diabetes and why? 
I do um, can affect people across socioeconomic, social demographic groups, but there are certain populations that are disproportionately impacted. Um, and the risks for type two, I, I had mentioned before, but it's a combination of uh, genetic predisposition, lifestyle and social and environmental factors. The simplest is age, right? We know as for type two, uh, the older we get, the higher the risk for developing type two. We know type two is a disease of the poor. Uh, this is true in the U. I'm speaking about the U.S. So what we know is the socioeconomic factors. You know, so having a lower income and having lower educational levels uh, are a risk factor and contribute to an increased risk of type two. Um, again, this is connected to what I had spoken about before, right? So if you're living in poverty, you're, if you're, you know, you're struggling with food insecurity, your access to healthy food options is there. If you live in a food desert, the options are limited. The lack of uh, safe neighborhoods, recreational facilities, flexibility with employment, all of that comes to a head, right? So it's no mystery why folks that are living in poverty or in the lower socioeconomic status would end up with a high risk for diabetes. So when we break it down by educational level, this is actually quite striking. You look at the CDC data, and if you break it down by education, what you see is that um, people who have not completed high school have the highest prevalence of diabetes compared to folks that have more than a high school education. And, and those numbers are quite striking. So for those that have less than a high school education, the prevalence is 13%. And for those who have more than a high school education, meaning some level of education or college, the prevalence is 6.9%. If we look at income level, um, adults uh, with a family income level below the federal poverty level have the highest prevalence of diabetes, not surprising. So again, I'm going to give you some numbers. For those that are less than 100% of the uh, federal uh, poverty level, their prevalence is 13%. And if we look at those that are 500% of the federal poverty level, so that's like the top of the uh, socioeconomic ladder, uh, 5%, so less than half, okay? And the reason I'm bringing up socioeconomic status and really kind of wanting to point to these two factors, which is you know, education and income is to then bring up the issue of ethnicity and race. Because when you go to the CDC or when you, I mean, most documents would, would uh, point or list ethnicity slash race, which we know are not the same thing, right? So that's a whole nother conversation. But you go to the CDC and they will tell you, and because it's true that a lot of ethnic and racial groups are disproportionately affected by type two, have a higher overall prevalence, right? So that is true. So what we see is as a whole, if you categorize people based on the social constructs of ethnicity slash race that we have made up, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders have a higher prevalence, right? So to give you some of those numbers, American Indians, 14% prevalence, Asians, 9%, for African-Americans is 12%, for Latinos, 11.7, and then for white non-Hispanic is 6.9. So there's quite a range, right? When you compare whites with uh, the other groups, uh, again, we see great disparities. But 
The reason I'm pausing here is because I do not want to reinforce this idea that race and ethnicity is the risk factor. If we were to stratify these groups at the intersection of income, education, and race or ethnicity, I think we would find very different numbers. And in fact, we know that, for example, among Latinos, the prevalence among Mexican-Americans is much, much higher than the prevalence among South Americans. A difference in prevalence that we see within groups has to do with who they are, their immigration history, their socioeconomic status, what resources did they bring to the U.S. as immigrants, who are they, right? It, it's not about the race or ethnicity, it's about all these other factors that I was discussing. No, I, you know, I really appreciate you talking about this notion of race and ethnicity not being a risk factor because it's historically different from what we're always told. So I really appreciate you shedding light on that fact, it, it being more about class or other socioeconomic factors. Now, shifting gears to more regarding like treatment, um, given like the risk factors, the complications, the prevalence of diabetes, specifically type two, what innovative approaches to diabetes treatment have you led? I'll focus on, on the one that I'm working on right now, um, which is it's a pilot program that we started. When did we launch? We launched in November of 2022. And uh, this is a collaboration with the Office of Population Health, uh, the Adult Endocrinology Division, and the School of Nursing. And essentially what it is, it's an innovative model. It's called a, a diabetes collaborative care. We're able to provide folks with the support and education and holistic care that our current system is not able to provide. So the way it works is we have, we identify the patients. So we say, okay, these are the folks that have A1Cs over nine. We prioritize Latinos and African-Americans because they had uh, you know, they were disproportionately um, represented in, in, this, in this population. We have a nurse and a health navigator. They do all of the contact and it's very, very close up. And then there's, commu there's communication and consultation with NP myself, who has like expertise in diabetes and also an adult endocrinologist. And then we collaborate with primary care. So it all goes back to primary care. The patient stays in primary care. But what you're doing is you have this team, this what we call the behavioral health team, uh, which is the nurse and the navigator who are truly like there for the patient, right? It's like, I don't know how to use the sensor or I can't pick up the sensor in the pharmacy or I don't know, I'm confused about my insulin dosing that my endocrinologist told me. I have no idea what they're talking about. They help with connecting them to the services they need with problem solving. They also work with them on SMART goals and really kind of making slow changes. We have case conferences weekly so that you have the expertise of endocrinology feeding into this system, right? You have this case conference where it's a very comprehensive intake. We have the whole picture. It's very holistic. We make recommendations. Then the nurse and navigator work with the patient we then feed this information to primary care. So all along, primary care is looped into the care, but they have this incredible team, which is the nurse and the navigator who are really working very, very closely with the patient, problem solving and troubleshooting and navigating the maze that it is our healthcare system. 
I think getting the initial results would be great just to kind of see the success of the program. It sounds amazing. In our initial uh, analysis, we found that there were about 158 patients that fit our inclusion criteria, which was they had to be Medi-Cal, so part of San Francisco Health Plan or Medi-Cal, and uh, A1Cs at least over 8%. So of those 158, I won't go into the minutia of the data, but we've achieved a 25% enrollment rate. You say, mm, that's not great, but it's, it's actually pretty amazing when you think this is all through phone calls. Uh, we've engaged twin, you know, fourth of the patients uh, in our program. So as of today, uh, we have currently 32 patients enrolled. And among those that have been enrolled in the program for at least three months, uh, which is 23 people. And again, this is really early on. This is initial data. We have 23 people. Of those 23 people, the mean A1C was nine, right? So remember what that meant, the nine is with a glucose about 250. Um, so fast forward, you know, at least three months, some of them six months, and we repeat the A1C and our average A1C is 7.5. So I don't know if this means a lot to you. For those of us who do diabetes work and diabetes research, this, this is incredible. It's it's a very powerful impact. Thank you so much for sharing um, this pilot program. It, first and foremost, it sounds amazing and it's helping so many lives. And I'm just excited for the expansion of it and for it to grow even bigger and help even more communities. Carolina, can you share what inspires you in your work with diabetes care? I'm inspired by the resiliency of people it's so humbling, right? Like whenever I, I was like having a bad day or still today, you know, when I go into clinic, I'm having a bad day. I think my life is this or that. And then you meet folks that are facing so many challenges, uh, not just with their health, but there's also all these other challenges that, you know, sometimes supersede actually the, the, the chronic illness they're managing. Um, and yet people find a way of finding hope and they keep trying and they don't give up. They keep showing up, you know, when it would be so much easier just to like surrender and give up. And, and I think that's just this human, the human spirit is, is amazing. Like the resiliency and the willingness to keep fighting. At the beginning of the episode, you told us about a patient you worked with who participated in this pilot program. If you don't mind sharing, how is that patient doing today? She's doing amazing. She's incredibly empowered, I would say. She has learned so much um, in working with our nurse and navigator. Her last A1C is 7.2. She's at goal, which she never thought she would achieve. It's been years of her trying and and boom, there it is. Wow, that's awesome. I'm so glad that she's doing well and that the program has been a benefit to her. Um, I just want to thank you, Carolina, for joining us on this episode of Illuminating Health. And thank you to all our listeners. I'm so excited for the work that you're doing and can't wait to hear more. Uh, we look forward to connecting with you next time. Thank you so much for having me. And it was really nice to connect with you, Luci. Mm -hmm.